to eat it because they kicked it the whole evening and it never busted. Kirk, CBS is Peter King from Orlando. Florida was the first state to require armed guards at all public schools, and starting today, the mix can include teachers who've been through a 144-hour training program, which includes psychological and drug testing. That said, the state education department says just 11 out of 67 counties have expressed any interest in having teachers armed in the classroom. The law was passed in response to last year's Parkland school shooting. Debbie Hickson's husband, Marjorie Stoneman High's athletic director, was one of the 17 killed. Teachers should not be burdened, whether they think they want to be or not, with the responsibility of worrying about carrying a firearm. Florida's largest districts, Miami-Dade and Orlando, have both opted out of the program. Beginning today, you have to be 21 or older to buy cigarettes and vapes in Maryland. John Schachter with Tobacco-Free Kids. We're going to get these products out of the high schools, out of the middle schools, certainly, where kids have access to these dangerous products from uh, friends and classmates. The violence reaches a new level in Hong Kong. Correspondent Rami Innocencio. Broken glass and fires turn the streets of Hong Kong into a battleground. Video posted online appears to show a police officer shooting a demonstrator at close range. According to reports, the man is in critical condition. Hong Kong leader Carrie Lam joined President Xi Jinping in Beijing to celebrate China's 70 years of communist rule. The Justice Department says President Trump recently asked Australia's Prime Minister for help investigating the origins of the Russia investigation. CBS's Paula Reed. The president's personal outreach to Ukraine and Australia raises more questions about whether the president should be reaching out to foreign leaders to help pursue investigations into accusations that are largely discredited about his political opponents. Britain's prime minister denies a report he groped a young reporter back in the 90s before he entered politics. Live to London and CBS's Vicki Barker. Not everyone's convinced by Boris Johnson's denial. Commentator Sonia Purnell notes he's previously dismissed similar accusations from multiple women. She says the latest accuser is now a highly respected columnist. Have a look at Boris Johnson and have a look at his relationship with the truth over many years. And if you look at both sides, who would you actually really believe? And Johnson's approval rating among British women is falling fast. Deborah? S&P futures are up eight. Dow futures ahead. 77. This is CBS News. Behind every moment shared with the ones you love is a plan that helped make it happen. Learn more or find an advisor at MassMutual.com. Liberty Mutual Insurance Company presents... And Doug. Lemu, when we're not telling people that Liberty Mutual customizes your car insurance so you only pay for what you need, I've actually been moonlighting as a DJ. Check it! Here's the good part. Liberty, 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 liberty. Only pay for what you need at LibertyMutual.com. Rock Legends, presented by O'Reilly Auto Parts. What's the secret to Bruce Springsteen's success? He studied the greats and had a lot of confidence. I listen to the radio and say, well, I'm as good as a lot of those guys. You know, nobody knows it yet. <laughs> Maybe they never will, but inside I felt like I had the goods, you know, I had the goods. Think O'Reilly Auto Parts for all your car care needs. Get guaranteed low prices and excellent customer service at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. 
There's a new memorial in the South honoring the victims of 1919's Red Summer, the largest racial mass killing in U.S. history. In Elaine, Arkansas, at least 200 black men, women, and children were killed in white-on-black violence after poor black sharecroppers who dared to join a union were attacked. Over the weekend, a 1,400-pound, 3-foot-6-inches-tall cenotaph was erected about 20 miles away from the site of the massacre. An opponent said the money could have been used for something else in one of the state's poorest counties. In 1919, blacks in cities including Chicago, Omaha, and Washington, D.C. were also attacked by white mobs. Allison Keyes, CBS News. A late reggae superstar honored in London. A rare English heritage blue plaque has been installed on the home in Chelsea where Bob Marley and the Whalers lived in 1977. They were recording their hit album Exodus at the time. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. The U.S. is in debt, and the IRS is getting more aggressive, using private agencies to track you down, seize your assets, and even start the process of taking away your passport. Dealing directly with the IRS can be a daunting experience. Oxford Tax Partners has the experience and the reputation at substantially lowering your IRS debt, or even having it forgiven. Don't wait. If you owe more than $10,000, take advantage of the Fresh Start initiative. If you qualify, it will stop the IRS collection agencies from coming after you. Let the experts at Oxford Tax Partners get you Protected once and for all. Call Oxford Tax now at 800 575 1919. That's 800 575 1919. If you owe more than $10,000 to the IRS or haven't filed your taxes in past years, with one phone call, you may be on your way to having your taxes forgiven or substantially reduced. Find out more. Call the tax experts at Oxford Tax Partners for a free consultation now at 800 575 1919. 800 575 1919. That's 800 575 1919. At Athens Cell Phone and Electronics Repair, we repair all brands of cell phones, tablets, and computers, including iPhones and Samsung devices. Whether it's a screen or battery replacement, logic board repairs, or charge ports, Athens Cell Phone and Electronics can fix it all. Why spend a bunch of money on a new device? With over 40 years of electronic experience, we'll repair your device for a fraction of the cost. We're open Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., and Saturdays from 8 a.m. to noon. Stop in and see us at Richland Avenue between Taco John's and McAfee's. Give us a call for a free estimate at 740-590-1677. Being in the Army National Guard is about more than serving your country. It's about being there for your community when your neighbors need you most. The Army National Guard makes college affordable, and serving part-time can help you graduate debt-free. Do you want to stay close to friends and family? The Guard allows you to serve close to home. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard lets you have the life you want. Learn more by visiting NationalGuard.com. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Alpine Heating and Cooling is a local, veteran-owned HVAC contractor providing you comfort with their best guaranteed prices, 24-7 emergency service, 10-year warranties on new systems, and free estimates. Alpine, with a Y, uses quality products from top brands like Ream and LG. Call them at 740-591-2777 or email bill at alpinehvac.com. Alpine Heating and Cooling, helping you stay cool and drop it like it's hot. When the pimp's in the crib, ma. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. AM 970 and 97.1 FM. WATH Southeast Ohio. 970 WATH. Good morning, folks. 
welcome. Another hot day in store for us. 70 degrees right now. Headed up to 91 or so. Add that heat index and it's up to 100. Hey, we got a special edition today. We're going to learn about uh, stars. And astronomy. And comets. All that sort of thing. Right here on the party line. Good morning and welcome. And uh, joining us, uh, two uh, fellas that have known each other a number of years, George Eberts and Tom O'Grady. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Welcome to each of you. And uh, I, I, I hadn't really realized this, this the fact that two of you began this together at the same school up in Columbus when you were in, like, high school and stuff, right? Yes, and I had moved here to Athens first, uh, and I sent him a grad school catalog and yeah. said, "Hey, you ought to, you ought to try out this university." So he did. Well, yeah, we we started uh, high school freshman year in Columbus, nineteen sixty four five, I guess. Right in that zone, eh? Well, um, you know, what? What uh, you knew each other before. You went to the same school and everything. Um, what, uh, what, what was the magnet? What drew you to it? To astronomy? Yeah. I had been doing astronomy in my own backyard with a small telescope and a pair of binocs since about the probably fourth grade. Wow. And... Uh, <clears throat> It was Christmas of the third or fourth grade. I don't remember exactly, but my parents got me a little telescope for Christmas. I also got a chemistry set and a microscope pretty close to the same time, and I used to wonder why. My brother got football pads and, and basketballs <laughs> and that kind of thing. <laughs> I realized later what had happened is that my parents go to the uh, sixth floor of Lazarus in mm-hmm. downtown Columbus to oh. buy Christmas presents for the for the kids. I the remember two, the it two well. Boys. Yeah. And um, instead of sports equipment, one year they went there and there were a bunch of science stuff. The uh, Russians had launched Sputnik and the United States was experiencing what it thought of as a missile gap and the push was on to get uh, what we today would call STEM classes going in high school, science, technology, engineering, and math. And at the time they scrambled around to see what they could do to support that effort and uh, what you do is get chemistry sets and telescopes and stuff for kids right (laughs) so that was my Christmas present and a lot of kids in that era uh, had little telescopes mostly they used ended up uh, taking them off the tripod and using them for baseball bats (laughs) (laughs) but in my case I really used it well I went out in the backyard and um, was able to see the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and and that stuff. So I was off to the races at that point. And the year was only around 61 or 62. Late spring, early summer. I Uh, walk my two dogs uh, each evening around 9 o'clock. And it must have been later that night because um, it was dark. And uh, Kelly Miller, who works for the Wayne 
National Park. Or, uh, yeah, that's right. Um, I go past her yard, and suddenly I realize she's there. You know, it's dark, and you're a little startled. And she said, no, no, I've got my telescope. And she was looking at Venus because at that time, I guess Venus was supposed to be the closest that it is, what, annually? Something like that. Yeah, Venus cycles run about every year and a half. Um, So it would be for a good 18-month period. Yeah. Venus goes between the sun and the earth every, every 18 months or so. Well, I was given uh, by my family a telescope, oh, I suppose it's been eight or ten years ago. And um, I I really am not terribly proficient with it. I think there's, you know, certain things you have to know to do. Uh And, um, but I've had some fun with it. It's just I don't think I'm using it to its best or fullest uh, capability. Well, let's talk about some of this stuff. Now, um, so for 35 years now, the two of you have been teaching observational astronomy here at Ohio University. That is correct. Now, um, the university has uh, several telescopes, right? Yes, it does. Now, uh, use them all. T- tell us about uh, what's different about each and, and where they're generally located. I know one used to be on top of the Artec building. Is there still one there? No, the Artec building telescope was taken down um, around the year 2005 okay. or so. Uh, it languished in pieces on the shelf of the basement of Clippinger Lab for about 10 years. And it was put back together when Ohio University decided to build a dome for it uh, up at the old tuberculosis hospital building at the asylum site. Mm-hmm. So today, that telescope is <clears throat> its quite a nice telescope. It's a bit of an antique. It's um, Antiques don't mean bad things, do they? Not in terms of telescopes. They right. mean craftsmanship and original quality. Yeah. Um, it's made by the J.W. Fecker Corporation, which is heir to the Brashear telescope-making tradition of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Brashear was probably the second-best American telescope-maker of all time, Alvin Clark being the first. And i got to mention that OU has an Alvin Clark refractor, a 4-inch Clark refractor, that's currently on display at the Southeast Ohio History Center. Now, a refractor... Um, so there, I'm guessing the word reflection is in there. No, that would be a reflector telescope. Okay, so There's refractor means what? It means that the light coming in from the star is refracted through a lens that's out on the end of the tube. Okay. It's your classic Galileo-type telescope, the, the sort of classic cartoon telescope. Okay. You, you look through the one end and out the other and the light coming in from the star hits that piece of glass first and it's refracted towards the viewer who's down at the far end of the tube. The the main difference is the refractor uses lenses, the reflector uses a mirror. Well, they all use lenses, right? Well, just in the eyepiece. I see. Oh, really? Yeah. But in the, uh, for the reflector telescope, the light goes down into it and it hits a large 
well, different size mirrors, and then uh, mm-hmm. it's ref- reflected out through an eyepiece, and you can change the size of the eyepieces. Whereas the refractor telescope, the light comes through a large lens, and then it enters, or it leaves through another smaller lens on the eyepiece. You know, I live on the Far East side, and there are street lights at different crossroads and so on. And um, light pollution. Uh, you know, I, I, I know when uh, the baseball field is lit or uh, the the Peden Stadium is lit or whatever it might be, athletic complexes at night. Um, it makes it a lot tougher to uh, view what you're going after, doesn't it? It makes it impossible to see things like nebula and galaxies, what we call deep sky objects. It makes them impossible to see sometimes at all. Uh, see well at any time you can still see planets like if you're looking at Jupiter or Saturn you want to magnify them a lot you can still do that even with light pollution that's why the dome uh, up on the hill where the asylum was where the TB hospital was mm-hmm. it main, that telescope is suited for planets anyway <clears throat> and we mainly are going to look at planets on public observing nights and the craters on the moon yeah, the moon, that, that's a good one, too. But the, you cannot look at stuff like spiral galaxies and diffuse nebula, the birthplace of stars. You can't see that from in town with the light pollution. Even even just normal stuff, right? Well, By yeah. normal, I mean not when the lights are on from the stadium. Oh, right. Um, the lights on from the stadium just puts the coup de grace to any chance to see anything. Yeah. Uh, but you can, even on a regular old weekday night in the in the late winter, you st- uh, there's still plenty of light pollution, and you still can't see that stuff, that faint stuff. It's it's caused a situation where most of humanity doesn't really get a any real decent exposure to the night sky, as far as just looking up and seeing a sky full of stars and having any idea what the constellations that people have looked at for thousands of years might be like which has caused there to be more and more effort around the world for dark sky places mm-hmm. to try and protect those kind of places. Uh, I know in Hawaii, um, Mount Kilauea, um, and, and there's a couple significant mountains there where they have observatories. And um, uh, and they are far away from light sources. And it's really spectacular how much more you can see. Yes, it is. Well, let's see here. That's, that's, I'm jumping all around here. Um, so what is a star? It's a, it's a gigantic ball of gas. And at the, the center of it, the pressures and temperatures are so great that the, the gas, the atoms of hydrogen mostly and helium possibly, are moving so rapidly that they collide with each other and fuse together to form bigger elements, and they give off tremendous amounts of energy. Each time that happens, it's it's a therco- thermonuclear reaction, like a bomb, and it gives off and enough energy that it'll it'll burn you here 93 million miles away on a good day. It, it's, it's um, but it's continuous, yep. you know? Chain reaction. It has been for four and a half billion years anyway. On our star. So when you think of, um, you know, a, likening it to a bomb, you think of an explosion, which is a bang, and then it's over. Um, <clears throat> these continue 
to um, to to send this beautiful, well, yes, beautiful light, and and you know different. Um, I I you know what is a star? Well, do they have different physical and chemical properties? Well. Our sun is typical of stars. It's right in the middle of the distribution. It's about as big as the as half of the stars are, <clears throat> and uh, the color is right in the middle of the range of possibilities. But there are bigger stars that, uh, in their prime, they are bluish colored, and there are smaller stars which, in their prime, are reddish colored, and they live different lengths of time. Uh, a big star, a big blue star. Blue giants, as they're called. Uh, if you reckon star lifetimes in billions of years, these big guys don't even make it halfway to their first birthday. They make them peter out after one th- a fourth to a third of a billion year lifespan. <clears throat> and uh, the little guys live forever. They they might live as long as twenty billion years. Some of them born after the Big Bang are still there. So there's a range of sizes, temperatures colors and lifespans in the stars <clears throat> when when stars get old they pump them their volume of their bodies way out into space they become perhaps millions of times more voluminous than they have been all along there a star like the sun might get as big as the orbit of the planet mars and then the core dies and all nuclear fusion stops <clears throat> so the stuff that's out there, it's stuff like carbon and oxygen, silicon. It drifts out into space. It uh, peppers the immediate interstellar environment. And now when a new star gets born, maybe after another billion years, there's a real good chance it can have planets around it because the solid, chunky carbon and iron and whatnot is out there to work with. When you, when you asked if they had the same makeup, uh, an individual star can have have different properties over its lifetime, too, because uh, some of them, if they start out very massive, they can explode, and when they explode, uh, it becomes a neutron star, which is completely different from the kind of star that we have, and if they're big enough when they explode, they could become a black hole, so a black hole is a, you so know, another end of the spectrum of a star. When we're looking up at the sky at night, and I often do it, as I have already mentioned, walking the dogs. And some nights, of course, you see so much. And other nights, not so much. And it can be clouds. It can be whatever. Um, but when it's really popping. Um, so here's a star over here's a different one. Uh, the chemical makeup of each could be entirely different, right? Not really. The The stars can be at different ages and different distances, which would cause them to be different brightnesses. They could be different sizes, things like that. Uh, but they're probably pretty much made of the same things. Some of them can have a higher percentage of a material that's been manufactured. Some of them haven't got that far along yet. But they're they're basically following the same process and making the same stuff and made up of the same stuff until they until the special ones that are up there explode. Then those are different. <laughs> now, let's, let's, okay, so this, I don't even know what I'm asking, but I'm going to try it anyway. 
How often is a new star discovered? <clears throat> well, new stars uh, come about through a long developmental process in a place called a diffuse nebula, a cloud of gas and dust out in space where, this is oversimplified, but you can think of stars as forming out of the material like raindrops form out of a cloud of water vapor. <laughs> There's thick spots, and then they break away from the cloud, and they begin to self-gravitate, and they end up being stars. So this process takes millions of years, and humans don't just watch it happen. We right. see different examples of stars at different stages along the process. <clears throat> and what we're looking at with Ohio University equipment is just we want school kids or adults that are interested, that are amenable to the to the amazement that we can all experience. We want them to look through the telescope, ask questions like you're asking, and have a good time with it and learn something all at the same time. But if you're really into researching this stuff, you have spectroscopes looking at the absorption lines and the bright lines in the spectra of these stars, and you can tell what exactly what chemicals they start with and uh, what their temperature is and that kind of thing. But As, as far as finding a, big, a new star... They pretty much know where these nebula are, where stars are being formed, and so they're just, you know, they don't just pop into view at any given moment, probably, and so they just know where they're, where where this kind of thing's happening. They call them stellar nurseries, and now, they know where most of those are, and there's stars coming into life in those at all we're, times. We're here in Ohio. Um, if I go to um, North Carolina, or Arizona, or whatever, Wyoming, heaven forbid. My audience will understand why I said that. Um, <laughs> although they don't have very much light pollution there. Nope. It's very dark skies. Yeah. Um, am I seeing different things? No. If, if you go south, you see a few more things than people here in Ohio can, but you're basically seeing the same stuff at just a little bit different time of of night. Mm-hmm. We we, uh, we go over this with our students in some detail with globes of the earth and celestial spheres. If you travel from Ohio out through um, northern California, across Japan, southern Russia, out through Turkey, Spain, and back again, you'll see basically the same sky every night. But if you go to Florida, things change a lot. And if you go to Brazil, they are almost unrecognizable. So the sky changes as you go north and south. But as you travel east and west, it stays pretty much the same. The moon will be slightly moved over, maybe a little bit fuller or less full, but the background stars are the same. And that's true for just about the whole continental United States, from the Canadian border down to about the middle of Texas. And the average person looking up and looking around isn't going to see really any difference. Yeah, that's that, the, the differences are mostly noticeable if you're familiar with the patterns in the sky. If you're now, not, it's all, it's all different all the time. So we started out early saying that uh, Ohio has two um, antique, if you will, but uh, highly high-quality um, refractor telescopes. Uh, one's a 4-inch, one's a 10-inch. Um, does the size of the lens particularly have a factor in the quality of observation? 
Well, yes, it does. The size of the lens, what's, what's called its aperture, how many inches in diameter the lens is, that determines how f much faint stuff you can see and how much you can resolve at a high magnification. Okay, so what are telescopes doing in the first place? They're not just making small things bigger or far things closer. For astronomers, the most important thing that telescopes do is that they make faint things brighter so you can see deeper into the blackness. Mm. So if you uh, look around just with your eyes, you're looking at the light that comes in, the little black holes in the middle of your eyeballs. They're called pupils. Yes. And that's about six millimeters. That's the aperture of the human eye, six millimeters, a fourth of an inch. With a telescope, all of the light that lands on that big lens out at the end, it gets funneled into your eye. It's as if your pupil was the size of a dinner plate. So you see much, much fainter stuff than you can see just with the regular human eye. And um, that's the that enables you not only to see fainter stuff, but if you jack up the magnification, you can s see smaller craters on the moon or you can split double stars more efficiently. Now, I, I okay, so... Uh, when I was growing up, I w lived near Perkins Observatory, <coughs> which was oh, just south of Delaware, um, kind of part of the, um, what was that, the seminary up there. Josephinum? Yes. Well, anyway, um, somewhere up there. And at that time, it was away from city lights. Now that whole area has been developed. So I'm sure they have the lighting issue um, now that they didn't have before. Well, matter of fact, they took the original telescope out of that Perkins Observatory, moved out to uh, either Arizona or New Mexico. Oh, really? Yeah, way back in the early part of the 20th century because it was already getting too too bright. Even though it was still as dark as as you recall it, it was uh, there were darker places to put it, and so they've had smaller scopes there since. Well, um, okay, let's try a different one. John Glenn, okay, the John Glenn Astronomical Park. Now, that's just up in neighboring Hocking County, right? Right. Um, what, what, what kind of equipment do they have? Well, I'm glad you asked because Ohio University is a supporter of that whole process of making that park and running it. Um, I'm Ohio University's float into the staffing mix. And I run the place on the second Saturday of every month. We bring Ohio University astronomers up and do the program. So it's got a collection of decent medium-sized telescopes in the 10-inch uh, to 18-inch range. And we drag them out of the shed and set them up in the plaza. The crown jewel of JGAP, as we call it, John Glenn Astronomy Park, the crown jewel of JGAP is a 28-inch reflector. And that's a telescope with a mirror collecting the light, and it's 28 inches in diameter. It's the largest telescope in Ohio that's located in a light uh, pollution-free environment, mm. and it's open to the public. So we are looking at stuff you cannot see any other way. I like to <coughs> um, look at spiral galaxies and globular star clusters. And these are things you see pictures of, of them, you think, wow, those are beautiful, that's really cool. But you can't see them through a little backyard telescope. You can find them, but you can't 
see them in any detail. You, you're not gathering in the light or able to magnify at the level that the JGAP telescope is. So uh, people come to JGAP to see stuff they, they cannot even see with a decent little telescope from their own backyard. And you can bring equipment anytime to JGAP. There's a, a, a plaza that's protected from light pollution and main, mainly, in this case, meaning car headlights. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you can set up your equipment there. You can plug it in at the Jupiter bench. And you can uh, take do astro imaging or uh, just observing through the telescope any night of the year for free. It's a, just a place for astronomers to go and and do astronomy. <coughs> Excuse me. Sure. It's lightly policed in that um, Hocking Hill State Park police come by every hour or so and make sure everything's okay. Yeah. Um, and it's always okay because this avocation this pastime draws some of the coolest people uh, in the world <laughs> to do it anyway it's less of an observatory per se than it is a uh, a place to to go to observe the night sky and you can bring telescopes as opposed to just go visit one uh, and but, people do that but on when, friday and saturday nights every week from march through november JGAP has a staffed program. Somebody like me, it'll probably be Brad Haney, who is the actual director of JGAP, and he's a member of the Columbus Astronomical Society. And it's really those guys uh, <clears throat> who st- mostly staff JGAP and mostly run the programs and donate telescopes and that kind of thing. The Columbus Astronomical Society is uh, doing real well for membership and support. Always need more, but that they are one of the premier telescope and astronomy clubs in the state of Ohio. So they're about as far away to the north as we are to the south. And we meet in the middle at JGAP. Um, and people generate magnificent astronomy images by using that site because it's devoid of most light pollution. Okay, now we've got planets, we've got uh, moons, we've got stars, Um, I'm sure there's another half dozen terms I could use, but aren't they all the same? They're all made of the same stuff. You know, every planet out there is made of material that was manufactured in the hearts of stars or by the explosion of stars so it's all, it's all the same stuff and and even like everything in our solar system is made up of stuff that was manufactured in stars but in in the long term as our sun our star expands and becomes what they call a red giant it will vaporize most of those very planets anyway and they'll become star stuff again so it's just a big uh, system of of material in the sky that just keeps going through these same processes over and over again. When we look at a star far off in the distance at night, couldn't it be a sun for something else? Oh yeah, that's that's what they all are. See what I mean? Yep. And they could have it could be a a sun with a lot of planets orbiting it, with moons orbiting those planets, and yeah. you know asteroid belts and. Uh, comets, all the usual stuff. Maybe. <laughs> we haven't seen a whole lot 
<clears throat> of anything up close. So, but they have found plenty of of planets around those other stars. So they're suns. Suns and stars are just interchangeable. We just the only sun we really refer to that way is ours. But they are all suns. Dis- funny, distant suns. When I was growing up, you would read that we still don't know of any planets going around any other stars. Ours may be a very special case. Well, that's funny now because they know of hundreds of planets going around dozens of other stars. Every year the list keeps growing. They're able now, uh, and they weren't before, but they're able now to detect planets the size of the Earth, and they've begun to be able to sample their uh, chemistry. So advances in this kind of thing come hard and fast in astronomy. Um, And I suppose the 900-pound gorilla in the room when you're talking about this is, well, you got stars and you got planets. What about life? Mm. So no astronomer seriously doubts that there's a lot of life out there in the universe. The question is what percent of it uh, gets sophisticated enough to to have uh, flying saucers? And the answer is vanishingly small number, few people. We aren't even quite at that stage, although we're, we're, we kind of are beginning to be at that stage. But you look at the time life has existed on Earth. It started about three billion years ago, and it was just single-celled organisms for the first couple of billion years. About half a billion years ago, they began to be things we can call animals and plants, and only so if you make a timeline and you put the beginning of life over here on the left and now on the right, the time that humans have existed is not even but a thousandth the width of a human hair compared to the length of time that there's been grass and insects uh, and Algae. a few animals <clears throat> and a lot of scum at the bottom of the ocean. So the reasoning is that the percentage of life out there that's Intelligent is like one eighty-five billionth of a percent of a single percent, but the number of planets that have the chemistry and the temperature, oh, they're all over the place out there, and there are zillions of worlds with air and grass and maybe insects, uh, and the the vast majority of life on other planets looks like that, and you get into trees and animals with backbones. It's a much rarer percentage. You get into intelligent primates, and there aren't very many at all. Um, that's the most. That's what I would summarize the current thinking of most astronomers about the occurrence and percentage of life on other planets. But all with no evidence thus right. far. It's and they have they have located more than four thousand exoplanets thus thus far. Exoplanets. Meaning That's what they call them. Planets orbiting other suns. I see. Let me throw out another term, and you tell us. Uh, we use it commonly, but do we understand it? A comet. Oh. What is a comet? A comet's a frozen ice ball orbiting the sun, and there are untold numbers of them, and every now and then they... They are attracted in toward the sun in their orbit, and as they approach the sun, the solar wind heats them up and vaporizes them and and carries out that gas and dust away from the surface of the comet, creating a tail or two tails, a a dust tail and a a gas tail, the gas tail being the most obvious portion of it. 
and it just orbits the sun and then retreats back out into the outer portions of its orbit for the longest period of time and uh, some of them have short period orbits maybe 20 years or as Halley's Comet the famous one has a 76 year period but many more of them have thousands and 20,000 year periods and uh, now generally speaking the earth is geostationary no 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 um, the the things we're looking at are geostationary out in the skies it's the earth that is rotating and that's why we have night and day as the sun as we turn around face the sun and then we go we turn around the other side again yeah and and, and um And I assume that nearly all planets have some rotation um, just because of gravity and, well, help me, help me. Well, what's happening is what what you see in the night sky, all of it remains the same all throughout all of human history when it comes to things beyond the solar system. The only real changes we ever see in the night sky are locations of the planets, the moon, the apparent location of the sun, but that has to do with our orbit around it, mm-hmm. and then comets, which are part of our solar system also, which come moving in through here. So but the they, only changes yeah. we really see are, are nearby things. Everything else is just too far away, even though it's all moving. But the comet thing is unique because it is moving well, to a greater degree, Com- right? Comets are, you can think of them as an odd kind of a planet in that they go around the sun as the Earth does and Venus and Jupiter do. Uh, It's just that they have an extremely long, skinny orbit, and due to their very lightweight material, they evaporate and they fry up and they send gas and dust behind them in space. So uh, comets are uh, more, for the human race, they're freaky and, and rare, but for the planet Earth and science in general, they're they're fairly mundane objects. They're more common than planets. <laughs> yeah, there's zillions of comets waiting to be born, and there's only eight major planets. So now, way out beyond the farthest planet, beyond Neptune, beyond Pluto, and there's a zone called the Kuiper Belt, and there's a farther away zone called the Oort Cloud, and those places are reservoirs of billions of comet heads. And they're just waiting to get flung towards the inner solar system, go close around the sun, get boiled and baked, and the material turns into a comet tail, and then the comet heads back out into deep space. Folks, if you just tuned in, I apologize. I should have Uh, mentioned this previously uh, a couple times. Our guests today, George Eberts and Tom O'Grady, both of whom uh, have been fascinated with this topic of astronomy for, oh mercy, 35 or 40 years, and uh, from <coughs> high school days and so on, and, and um, in fact, longer than that. But they uh, have been teaching uh, astronomy here at Ohio University uh, for at least 35 years at uh, the university. Now... So we're just talking about the skies. Just talking about the skies. So you guys really, though, um, in the some of the notes that I'd taken uh, and, and that you had provided, 
Um, comets were pretty important to you. What's 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 the uniqueness there? You you cite uh, by name, you know, five of them plus a whole bunch of others. Uh, so Kahootek, Kahootek, uh, yeah, Halley's Comet, yeah. Hale Bop. I remember that one. Um, what? what uh, why are these so special? Well, because we go out and look at the sky so often, and things just don't change. <laughs> I mean, occasionally there's planets um, visible that that aren't visible every night or or all throughout the year. But comets that come in in a human lifetime they're rare exceptions, and and they're so dramatic looking in the night sky. Uh, the one on the list there that was the most dramatic that that we've experienced is called Comet West. And that was the brightest and most dramatic. And we didn't get to see it as much as we saw Kahootek mm-hmm. and Hale Bop. We had more looks at that, but they they weren't as bright and and dramatic as as, as Comet West was. And Comet Kahootek was an absolute disappointment, except for we saw it in a telescope. It was very small, very faint, but we knew that it was something different from everything else we were looking at. So couple of guys out on the edge of Columbus with a little telescope were pretty excited about it, but nobody else could see it. Tom and I and a couple of other fellows lived in a in a house uh, near 3rd and Neal in Columbus. Yes. I was working at Ohio State. Tom and the other guy were studying. <clears throat> so we got up before dawn and drove out on I-70 east of Columbus towards Zanesville. And we got out to about the 3rd or 4th rural country road type exit and got off there and watched Comet West rise in the east tail first from a uh, farm field and it was bright and spectacular visually spectacular so that that comet really does stand out for all of us who experienced it a lot of people didn't see it because it was rising in the east before dawn I have met people off and on throughout my life that did see Comet West they're up feeding the chickens or whatever. And um, <clears throat> we've talked about how spectacular that is. Comets are rarish. They should be another one any time now. We are overdue for a decent comet. There's been a few comets in the last 10 years or so that were telescopic comets or maybe barely visible through binoculars. And uh, before that in the... Uh, 90s, there was Comet Hale-Bopp. There was also Comet Yakutaki, which was spectacular in its own way. There were a couple of comets that Tom and I took our class on the buses out to the country to see from a light-free rural environment that you could see the tail and everything through telescopes, but they were, if you're just using the naked eye, they weren't that noticeable or spectacular. So what can come of this? I mean, you know, someone chooses the topic of chemistry, and presumably it's to discover compounds that will benefit this or that. I'm making this up as I go. Uh, Somebody else selects uh, some other uh, 